Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Encourage community. What can we do to encourage community in our local communities? How about if when we come to a four-way stop sign, instead of rushing to see who's next, suppose we stop and wave to people in the other cars? Might that have an effect on encouraging community? A lot of us nowadays are online. How about when we're in line? Suppose when you're in line at the local movie theater or you're at a local supermarket or somewhere else where you're in line, you turn around and talk to the person right next to you or the person in front of you. You just say, hi, my name's Fred and I just like to say hello. Or, hey, I heard that guy on the radio say, let's say hello to each other when we're in line. Might little things like that encourage community? Where am I coming from on this? A lot of us, when we walk around, have a sort of sense of maybe it's not right to say hello to people on the street or we're a little afraid to say hello to people on the street. But what would happen to our communities if everyone started saying hello just on the street? Just a little hello, not starting up a whole big conversation, but just as you walk by a person, say, good afternoon or good morning or hi. What do you all think? Might this over time have an effect on encouraging community? Would the next time you saw that same person on the same street and said hello, and then the third time you said hello, by the fourth time, might that person become, quote, more of a person and less fearful or less unusual or less distant? What do you think? What, how might we encourage community in our communities? Now, down in L.A., they're encouraging communities with a new kind of farmer's market. Yeah, you think the price of broccoli and asparagus and spinach is going up? Well, if you went to the farmer's market in Boyle Heights in L.A., you'd see some prices going up. This is a farmer's market of marijuana. Yeah, it's a whole farmer's market full of marijuana, and they're selling it just like they do at a regular, a regular farmer's market, only it's all pot. Interesting to see what's going to happen with that. Some people think it's great. Some people think the whole neighborhood's going up in smoke. Here's something from scientists. They're saying that a certain, a certain kind of human being is going to be extinct by the year 2048. In fact, they're sure of it. These are really top scientists from around the United States saying some of us are going to be, a lot of us are going to be extinct by the year 2048. What kind of people do you think will be extinct by the year 2048? Want to guess? Thin people. There will be no more thin people by 2048. Everyone will be obese or overweight. By 2030, 90% of us will be overweight or obese, and in 2048, everyone will be. But actually, if everyone's obese and overweight, then nobody will be obese and overweight because everybody will be normal, which will be obese and overweight. In fact, the abnormal people will be, well, they won't be any more thin people. They'll be extinct. So if you expect to be around in 2030, when 90% of us will be obese and overweight, you better start saving your clothes now if you expect to be thin because it'll be very hard to get clothing if you're thin in 2030. Why would anybody make clothing for just 10% of the population 
will be like me trying to get my 14D shoes. Very difficult, extremely difficult. Well, let's see what else we have here. Hmm. For millions of men with prostate cancer who have been having their testosterone suppressed, by the way, take a sidebar, 85% of the American male population will have prostate cancer by the time they die. What's going on with this poor little prostate that it's being attacked by cancer at such an alarming rate? I don't think anybody knows. But if you have an issue with prostate, you do not now want your testosterone suppressed. This is a treatment that's been going on for decades, and now new information says no, 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 no. If you have an issue with your prostate, though, this is something you want to go to your doctor with. It's not something that you want to treat yourself. But if you're having your testosterone suppressed, tell your doctor that there's new information out and you don't want it suppressed any further. For years, women have been taught to do the Kegel exercise. This is an exercise where you sort of pull in the way you'd pull in if you're trying to stop yourself from urinating in a place where you don't want to urinate, uh, such as outside of the bathroom. Now, there's new information that the Kegel exercise is a positive exercise for men. Yes, if you do the Kegel, and I'm going to tell you what it is in a minute, you can increase erections, increase orgasm, and if you have erectile dysfunction, you might even get some help for your erectile dysfunction. Yes, it can increase potency. What is the Kegel? The Kegel is you, you pull in as if you're trying to prevent yourself from passing gas or prevent yourself from urinating, and then after you pull in like that, you hold it for 10 seconds, and then you let out. You do this 10 to 15 times for each workout, and over time, you may have help with one of these issues that I just talked about, the Kegel. Men, you might want to try that and call in sometime and see it to let us know if you've had any results. Now, we're going to have a new report. It's going to be the Bob Report. And here in the studio is our reporter who came into the studio to give us this special report. Take over, Bob. Well, today I'm going to talk about inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, Jane Brody, the health writer for the New York Times, wrote a two-part series which ran on May 26th and June 3rd of this year. I made generous use of her information to prepare this segment, as well as draw from my own experiences. In the spirit of full dis- disclosure, it should be noted that I spent a summer with Jane Brody 62 years ago. I haven't seen or spoken to her since. Also, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in January of 1965. In January of 1997, my colon was removed and an internal pouch was formed from the end of my small intestine. I experienced numerous flare-ups over the years and took various medications. I can and will speak quite openly about my experiences, but cannot talk about other people's specifics. There are approximately 1.4 million Americans who suffer from inflammatory bowel disease. That's Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And most, according to Jane Brody of the Times, suffer in silence. IBD is not usually the first topic of conversation when groups of people get together. But lately I find that more people are discussing this and letting others know that they are not alone. Crohn's and ulcerative colitis are autoimmune diseases, the body attacking itself. 
While ulcerative colitis is usually confined to attacking the mucous membrane of the colon and can, if necessary, be pretty well cured if the colon is removed, it should be also noted that surgery is a therapy and not a failure of therapy. Crohn, on the other hand, attacks the muscle wall of either or both the small intestine and colon. As sections are removed, the disease can migrate in either or both directions. There are drug therapies that can often reduce the frequency and duration of flare-ups. Stress can exacerbate a flare-up, but is not usually the cause of the disease. A new study by Lawrence S. Gaines, a psychologist at Vanderbilt University, suggests that depression increases the risk of active disease a year later. New areas of study are opening up. Many people carry genes linked to either Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, but only some of them become ill. Environmental factors that interact with susceptibility genes also play critical roles. Strong clues to these factors are emerging from a distressing fact. The incidence of IBD is rising significantly both here and in other parts of the world. Dr. Ramnick J. Xavier, Chief of Gastroenterology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, said in an interview, There has been a huge uptick in China and India as these countries move more towards a Western lifestyle and adopt Western work and dietary patterns, said Dr. Xavier. IBD cases are now skyrocketing in well-to-do areas of China. Two concurrent avenues of high-powered research are supported by the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. One is the CCFA Genetics Initiative, in which scientists are exploring more than 100 genetic factors now known to influence the risk of developing an IBD. The other research effort, the CCFA Microbiome Initiative, has so far identified 14 different bacterial metabolic factors associated with the diseases. By combining findings from the two initiatives, experts now know that certain genes affect the types of bacteria living in the gut. In turn, these bacteria influence the risk of getting an inflammatory bowel disease. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome, Richard. For those of you who may have inflammatory bowel disease, I recommend you read the book by Bruce Lipton called The Biology of Belief. Some of you may remember we interviewed Bruce Lipton last year on this program, and he has ways of connecting the mind with the body, which may give some relief. And now to our interview. Today we have James Fox, author of The Prison Yoga Project, A Path for Healing and Recovery, and we're going to hear about James's work bringing yoga into prisons. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, James. Uh, Good morning, Richard. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. James, you started the Prison Yoga Project in San Quentin back in 2002. That's about 12 years ago. How did you happen to start a yoga project in a prison like San Quentin? Well, I was mm, fortunate enough uh, to be invited to actually start the program. I was invited by a nonprofit organization that had established the rehabilitation program at San Quentin. The name of the nonprofit is the Insight Prison Project, and they wanted to add a mind body healing component to the cognitive behavioral work that they were doing with prisoners there. So um, I had been doing work with at risk youth 
in um, juvenile detention and in residential treatment facilities, and uh, the founder of the Insight Prison Project asked me if I'd set the program up at San Quentin. So you had already been doing work with young people who were incarcerated before you came to San Quentin. That's correct. Did that le- work? What, what did you find? What, was it helpful? Did, was, was it encouraging? Well, one of the fundamental things is, uh, in, in fact, it's interesting, we could um, use this entire time talking about your intro to the program today and the application of yoga to the various issues that you brought up. But when I first started out working with um, at-risk youth, youth, youthful offenders, it was really clear to me that although they may be getting treatment in terms of therapy, and most of these young people are also on pharmaceutical treatment. They were not being approached from a holistic standpoint of working with their bodies, and particularly working with adolescents who are going through a major change in their lives. Their bodies are changing, their minds are changing, hormones, so on and so forth. I felt that uh, yoga would be a very effective approach in working with the youngsters on getting them into their bodies. And really, not only in terms of a, of a therapy, but also in a way of really engaging them, because, of course, young people tend to be more active anyway, and if you can get them into their bodies and play with them, so to speak, and allow that to be therapeutic, I felt that... Um, I had a chance of helping them overcome particularly some of the um, reactive and impulsive behavior that was getting them into so much difficulty. I want to back up just a bit because I realized something as you were talking. I realized that I was making the assumption that people who are listening know what yoga is. (laughs) I was making the assumption that I know what yoga is. (laughs) That's not necessarily the correct assumption to make, so let's back up and please... What is yoga? Tell us from your perspective as an expert. What is yoga? What's it about? Is it something you do in the Himalayas uh, in a cross-leg position, or is it something, you know, what is it? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, because there are a lot of misconceptions about yoga, and um, really from a a pragmatic standpoint, which is most important, and and I think think we yogis... uh, that's the would be the masculine and yoginis would be the the feminine of yoga teachers uh, yoga therapists we have this opportunity of bringing this incredible ancient personal development practice yoga that started some 2000 years ago into modern times and to use it for the mental and the physical health benefits that it offers so I would say to simplify things and, you know, to take out of people's mind, well, in order to do yoga, you have to be a pretty light uh, woman who's dressed in nice yoga clothes and doing asana practice, the postures. Well, the postures are just part of the practice. The postures and, are what we mean, like what, stretching? Yeah, the postures would be the exercises, the stretching exercises. Thank you. Which are really just a part of the practice, and, and, and not even the most important part of the practice. So if I were to simplify things, I would say that, first of all, yoga means union. It's a Sanskrit word that means union. And oftentimes people 
will say, well, it's the union of mind, body, spirit. And the way that I look at it is, well, I can't really speak to spirit. That's a very personal thing with people, uh, depending on their backgrounds and their religious or spiritual practices. What I can speak to in terms of yoga, and, and scientifically what I can speak to, is that yoga is the union of mental, emotional, and physical. That yoga brings together, through the practice of yoga, yoga brings together thoughts, feelings, and sensations in the body. And um, it, it's a self-awareness practice. And it's a body-centered awareness practice. So that most of the focus is in the body. It's developing a skill, developing a tool to disengage from the activity of the mind, the constant mind chatter, and balance that out by bringing awareness and concentration into the body. So the, what happens as a result of that is there's a famous yoga teacher whose name is BKS Iyengar. I think he's 96 years old. There's a whole tradition of yoga called Iyengar Yoga. And uh, Iyengar has said that the primary purpose of yoga is to free the mind from confusion and the body from stress. So if I were to simplify it, and people were to say, well, what's the real objective of yoga? I would say to free the mind from confusion and the body from stress. When people are doing yoga, and if they're doing it correctly, does this imply that they are thinking less? I'm, I'm curious. I mean, there are people who are listening who are saying, you know, geez, I, you know, I think I'm thinking all the time. You know, mm -hmm. I've got this this machine, this computer. It doesn't seem to ever turn off. Is is yoga a a, a method whereby I could think less and have a little a little rest? Yes, it is, and 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 I think the first step in that recognition in that self awareness is, oh my gosh, my mind is on twenty four seven. Uh most people are operating on automatic. They get up in the morning, there's a thought stream going through their head, and they chase the, the thought stream most of their day. And unless they have some kind of uh, body-centered awareness practice, be it exercise, walking, bicycling, surfing, whatever, they don't spend a lot of time really focused on their body. And as we age, there's probably less of that focus on the body. So... The three major components of yoga, yoga as we know it, there are lots of different expressions of yoga that, well, well I'll just mention a couple of them. There's bhakti yoga, for instance, which is devotional yoga. That's, that's chanting. There's um, jhana yoga, which is the yoga of knowledge. It's accumulating knowledge, and um, particularly knowledge about the higher self, so to speak. The type of yoga that is most uh, known to people in the West is called Hatha Yoga. It's the physical form of yoga. And there are three major components to Hatha Yoga. There's the, the contemplative aspect of the practice, which is really the beginning, and that is doing some practices 
to turn down the volume of the mind, to, to limit the mind chatter, to disengage from the distractions that the mind continually has. So that's a drawing of the awareness inward and using different types of techniques to draw the awareness inward. You could call it meditation. I prefer to call it centering practice. Is this the kind of yoga that a person would do if they're listening to the program and they say, gee, I, I, I'm one of those guys he's talking about or one of these women. I get up in the morning, the machine is on in my head. I'm thinking all the time. I'm thinking about work. I'm thinking about the kids. I'm thinking about this and that. And I'd like a break. Is, is this the kind of yoga that they might want to do in order to have a little vacation from the mind chatter? Yes. It could, a person could take 10 minutes in the morning and do an exercise, the exercise of drawing their awareness inward, connecting with their breathing. And the key to it is actually feeling what's going on in the body. It's simple and it's complex and it's difficult because these minds of ours they have a mind of their own. So in focusing the awareness inward and concentrating on the breath and beginning to feel the movement of the body, how our bodies move with our breath, the different parts of the body that move with the breath. By that I mean the belly, the diaphragm, the chest, the ribs. You can do a simple five to ten minute practice and get a tremendous amount of benefit from that in terms of disengaging from the mind and disengaging from the constant distractions of the mind. I would love to do that right now. I was thinking, gee, it would be great if I could ask James to put me through it. But if you get disengage me from my mind, then I would forget to do the rest of the interview. That would be a bit awkward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but it is something that can be done in just a few minutes. It can be done in just a few minutes. And then there, so there's the, what I would call the centering part of the practice, which is the foundation for the practice is learning how to, learning how to disengage from the mind. And that doesn't mean that you completely disengage from the mind. That's impossible. But thoughts will continue to arise, but you don't have to engage in the thoughts and begin thinking. That's, that's the distinction. And then the other well, very Before you go on, let me interrupt you there just for a mm-hmm. moment. Because you use an expression that I find myself using frequently as well, which is the mind seems to have a mind of its own. What's the story there? I mean, that we th- because it does seem to have a mind of its own, and yet we are not our mind. I mean, the mind is our tool to use, and yet it seems to want to direct the show. Yeah, I think I think it's very much of a cultural thing in the West. Uh, you know, it's less so in the East. Uh, if if you were from India or you were from parts of Asia and you grew up in that kind of a culture, there's much more focus on a contemplative lifestyle and um, drawing the awareness inward and learning these skills. I think in our culture from very early on, um, we are taught to develop the capacity of the mind. And uh, it's, it's through our education, it's through our, um, our home life, it's through our communities. I mean, one of the expressions I like to use with my students at San Quentin is, hey, you know, figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, what's wrong with you? And what I like to say is, 
how many of us have been able to figure everything out? We can't. The mind has its limitations. And what happens is when we can't figure things out, we become frustrated or we become judgmental. Why can't I figure this out? There must be, why can't I figure this out? Somebody else can figure it out. I can't figure it out. Um, so I think there's this, this over-preoccupation with developing the mind, developing the cognitive, the, the rational mind, and um, less focus on developing this bodily awareness, less focus on developing, which, which is closely connected, emotional intelligence. Because when you begin to sink into your body and feel into your body, you, you become more sensitive to yourself. So you, you, and you become less uh, injurious to yourself. Is that the correct term, injurious? Yes, it is. And so yeah. what, what you're saying, in effect, is that just as when we are totally absorbed in our thinking, we can lose touch with our feeling state, with our body, and all of us are aware of that. You Absolutely. can think so much that you could have a pain in your foot and don't even realize it. Uh, I've had the experience of being so absorbed in my thoughts that I've missed a turn on the, on the turnpike and gone 30 miles past my turn sure. before I s- somehow realized that I missed my turn. Right. That's really being absorbed in the mind, isn't it? It is. And, and it's also, and when it becomes chronic, it, it, it's, it, it moves into what you're probably very well aware of is dissociation. So dissociative disorders of being constantly disconnected from the body. Now, let me just make a jump here Um, because, of course, this is the real key in working with people like prisoners, people offenders, um, uh, returning combat veterans, Anybody who's experienced trauma and who's experienced chronic trauma has developed a disconnection with their physical bodies and with their emotional bodies, which to a certain degree allowed them to do the kind of things that they did to injure somebody else. They were cut off from their feelings. Their, their emotional feelings and their feelings of their body that enable them to commit the kind of offense that they committed. So part of the healing process, healing of trauma, has a great deal to do with associating or reassociating with the body again. There's a psychiatrist who's done a lot of work on trauma. His name is Bessel van der Kolk. And he established the trauma center at the University of Boston Medical Center, and he's done a he's done a lot of work, particularly working with returning combat veterans. And in my experience, combat veterans and um, gangbangers have a lot in common. Uh, we have a lot of former gang members. Uh, who are in prisons across this country, um, who basically uh, became dissociated to do the kinds of things that they did. 
Why would they want to reconnect, James? Why, I would think mm. that once they do such these terrible things, they'd mm. want to stay dissociated so they don't have to be in touch with what it is they did. They can remain distant, almost witnessing. What's the benefit to them for connecting? Don't they then feel the horror of what they've done? Yes, they do feel the horror of what they've done. And I think that's a necessary step along the way of healing. I think... I think people who have done, and this is my 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 faith in the in the in the human condition, is I think that people who have done horrible things are haunted. I, this has been my experience. They're haunted by the offenses that they've committed. They're haunted by the harm that they've caused, and they may have developed these thick shields uh, and 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 they and they would prefer to remain dissociated but when there's an opportunity when they see that there may be an opportunity to experience some healing uh, I have found that people most of the time will take advantage of that if it's presented in the right way. So you're saying that criminals of various kinds who are incarcerated at San Quentin, which is one of the places you work, they, many of them, including ones who have done serious crimes against other human beings, come into yoga classes and reassociate, get in touch with themselves, so to speak. Is that that's what you're saying here? Yes. I, I and and I really think, you know, and this could this could drift off into a uh into a deeper discussion. Um I think that, you know, in terms of yoga, uh, you know, the origins of yoga, the ultimate aim of yoga is self-realization. And oftentimes people hear that term and they go, well, you know, that may be for you, but that's not for me. Yeah, what does that mean, self-realization? What that means is understanding who you really are aside from your identity with your persona, your personality. That there's this deeper part of all of us. There's this, there's this deeper part in all of us that in my opinion, is our purpose for being here on Earth, to discover what this is. And uh, whether it's union with nature, whether it's union with something greater than ourselves, uh, there's this longing that I feel um, in us that drives us. And I think that people, either through their religious practices, because I find also that a lot of prisoners, once they get into prison and they do the kind of soul-searching of confinement, they do the kind of soul-searching, they begin to open up to religious practices. There's a vibrant religious community at San Quentin that's Native American, uh, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, um, and I think what happens is that this is this is a natural uh, transition for 
prisoners to do this self-exploration and to engage in their healing. And these are the kind of people who are typically open then to the kind of holistic healing that yoga has to offer. Boy, this really sounds like uh, something uh, tremendously ideal. I mean, I'm thinking if I'm a person who's killed a bunch of people, I don't know if I want to find out who I really am, because if I find out who I really am, I'm going to find out that I'm a person who just killed a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And th- th- that sounds terrible. I would rather think of myself as somebody who didn't kill those people or had good justification or some rationalization or, you know, some way I could blame somebody else for what I did, but certainly not to take responsibility. Let me interrupt here. I see somebody's trying to get through on the phone. They want to talk to you, James. Sure. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Oh. Well, you'll have to turn your radio off. Okay. Hi. Hi. You have a question for James Fox. I do, actually. Hi, James. Hi. Uh, Hi. How are you? I'm great. Uh, My name is Miranda, and I... I am a yoga teacher. I teach at uh, Sutter Center for Psychiatry mm-hmm. through um, the Yoga Seed Project here in Sacramento. And I just had a quick question for you about um, your about your method, um, sort of for protecting yourself. Um, what I was wondering from a yoga teacher standpoint is I had an incident with an adolescent boy in my class this past weekend, and he was in really acute pain. A lot of my patients, are their stay at the hospital is only three or five days. In other words, they're there for really acute mental conditions. And um, this young man was in such extraordinary, like, physical pain as a result of trauma. And I, despite my, my training and my experience, um, I, in that particular moment was sort of unable to sort of separate my own, you know, my own sort of mothering instinct, my own emotional reality from his. And I kind of came away feeling like I absorbed I absorbed his pain to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And what I was wondering was if you have any specific methods or techniques or, or any kind of approach that you go into your classes with um, so that you are somewhat buffered against other people's experience and still able to, to, to offer them something and deliver something. Mm. Yeah, thank you very much for that that question, Miranda, and thank you for the work you're doing there, too. I, I'm familiar with, with Yoga Seed and the work that you do there. Um, well, the first thing that I, that I would say is that I always prepare myself before I go into prison, and I, I go into San Quentin two or three days a week and have for the last 12 years. I always take the time be it five minutes to sit in my car and to prepare myself to expect the unexpected it's one of my mantras expect the unexpected and 
know that, okay, when I walk through the doors of the prison and I walk into San Quentin, I'm walking into a different world. And it's a world that has so much need for attention and for healing. And it's also, as you point out, it's also energetically, it can be pretty crazy if I'm not grounded. Um, it's, it's not often that way, but expecting the unexpected, it comes on sometimes, and you can really feel the energy and the chaos of the energy and the trauma also. It's a very trauma-focused um, kind of a place where there's a lack of safety, predictability, and control. There's trauma. So I think there's a part of myself that always is the observer, strengthening this this observer, this witness aspect of myself. And what came to mind to me when you were talking was feeling like, well, I've reached my limitation with this person and what I can do with them doing yoga, and this really should be in the hands of a psychotherapist, that the level of trauma that this young person is dealing with, I can only go so far with. And um, I also know very much this mission that we have of being karma yogis, of being of service to other people, and being able to recognize as open-hearted as I am, as much as I would like to serve, there's a limit to what I can do. Yeah, we and all have limitations. We can, we can, we can hold up a light, but um, we 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 can't do the entire work. The voice you're listening to is that of James Fox. We're interviewing him today on his book. And his work, his book is The Prison Yoga Project, A Path for Healing and Recovery. His work, he's been working in San Quentin for the last 12 years, as you heard, two or three times a week. And this work of prison yoga has spread to 70 or 80 prisons around the United States and many more around the world. The reported benefits from students that have worked with James Fox in the Prison Yoga Project include reduction of stress, more able to focus on positive rather than negative, support in their addiction recovery, greater mental clarity, pain relief, improved sleep, better able to deal with mental and emotional strain of being incarcerated, and for some, actually a greater access to inner peace. James, oh, by the way, folks, if you want to call in and ask James Fox a question about the Prison Yoga Project and his work, the number here is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. James, do you have a case history of someone that you might share with us, a, a prisoner uh, who got involved with the Prison Yoga Project? Yeah, I could share. I could share a couple of them, but one that comes to mind for me that I'd like to share with you is a is a man. Many of the men that I've worked with at San Quentin are life sentence with the possibility of parole. Um, if they're life sentenced with the possibility of parole, the majority of them were involved in a in a in a murder, either directly or um, 
indirectly involved as an accomplice. Um, I had a student who uh, started taking classes with me. Oh, this was probably 11 years ago. He was recently released after 30-plus years in prison and um, had killed somebody. And when he first started in his yoga classes, he was pretty cut off. He was very quiet. He was very reserved. Um, I would say he was even antisocial and um, was pretty hardened by the number of years that he had spent in prison. And <clears throat> over time, he began to experience the benefits of the practice on both his mind and his body and began asking questions and um, asking for more information. And by the way, these are one of the things that led me to write my book in 2009 was to be able to provide something concise about the practice of, of yoga. And I observed him over the years begin to open up, begin to lighten up. He was a very, very dark character and um, begin to lighten up begin to be more openly social. And all the while, his devotion, his dedication to his practice continued and continued and continues to this day now that he's out. Um, and he had said something one time. Um, I have the men fill out a questionnaire and ask them, pretty broadly about what they've experienced uh, from their yoga class, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And one of the things that he had said was that yoga has taught him the profound impact that violence has. And I really think that um, he, he, he gained a very, very deep understanding into his own violent tendencies, and I believe that he really developed the skill for impulse control, for learning how to deal with the violent tendencies that arise in him, the anger that arises in him. And I also think he learned a lot about dealing with other difficult emotions, too. James, the uh, the lady who called in, who's a yoga teacher, she was asking how you protect yourself psychologically Mm -hmm. from the vibes, if you will, from the, that are floating around in the air that, uh, that she picks up, and she was wondering how you take care of that. Mm -hmm. That's on the psychological. Uh, what about on the physical plane? You, you work in a prison with people who are, some of them sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, which means they have nothing to lose. And you say that the prison is a place where there's a lack of safety, a lack of predictability, a lack of control. Uh, are you ever afraid for your own physical well-being? Yeah, let, let me clarify a couple things. Um, I do not work with prisoners 
who do not have the possibility of parole. Ah. Uh, they don't have access to programs. They're life sentence prisoners with the possibility of parole. Um, the issue of safety and predictability and control is probably more related to the prisoners themselves than it is for me. Um, and what I mean by that, and, and, and I, I mean, this is probably true of any prison anywhere, and that is the danger is in the areas where the prisoners congregate with one another. Um, in the cell block areas, uh, in the chow hall, uh, uh, places like that. Um, so there's a sixth sense of mine that kicks in. Um, talk about self-awareness. When I'm in the prison, I basically, I'm on. And... I am very much aware of where I am at any given time. And, uh, for instance, if I have to cross the prison yard to go to a classroom, which I do, um, I'm aware that I'm on the yard. And I don't necessarily feel fear, but there is an alertness that if something were to happen, and, 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 and I'm also really clear that it wouldn't happen against me, something might happen among a number of prisoners, and I don't want to be in the middle of it. You understand what I mean? I, Definitely. I, I want to be very clear. If I can get to where I need to go by taking a longer route, I'll take the longer route. Um, you know, it, and, and, and skirt a, a lot of the the population because it's just the prudent thing to do. Um, when you meet with the prisoners, do you meet with them in groups? I meet with them in groups. How many are in the group? Uh, typically 15, 15 to 20 to a group. And we're in a room and um, we're very much there to do yoga. I do have conversations with the guys, which is mostly about the yoga practice, and sometimes they share with me things about their lives, and I'm able to uh, relate it to their yoga practice and how their yoga practice could assist them with issues that they might be dealing with. Uh, and, oh, occasionally over the year, I've had a couple of incidents that occurred in the classroom, but they weren't the kind of incidences that I couldn't handle or I didn't, I felt that I could handle. Are, this, are the, uh, the prisoners who come to your classes, are they self-selected or are they uh, appointed to your classes or both? They're all self-selected. It's all voluntary. And you find that in addition to the classes, some of them do the yoga practice on their own in their cells? Yeah, some of them, the cells are very, there's very, there's about as much free space in a cell as the size of a yoga mat. A typical cell at San Quentin, and San Quentin is a very old prison, so a typical cell at San Quentin is about five feet wide by ten feet long, and you have two grown men in that cell, a double bunk, a toilet, and a sink in the back. So the free space, other than the space around the sink and the toilet, the free, which is very little, the free space is about the size of a yoga mat. Now, you can, you can do yoga in the cell, 
and one of the reasons I know that is because when I first started out, I asked to be put in a cell so I could see if I could do a yoga practice. Um, but you've got to work it out with your, the term is celly, your cellmate. You've got to work it out with your celly that, okay, you've got the floor for this particular period of time. Or you can do some yoga out on the yard, which a lot of guys don't really want to do because they don't want to draw a lot of attention to themselves. You've got roughly 2,000 men in mainline at San Quentin. That means mainline prisoners, they're medium security prisoners, they have access to programs. And of those 2,000, I have about 70 students a week. So um, they, there are some of, the, some of the men, they do yoga practice. Some of the men actually do yoga practice in the gym. There's a group of men that I teach who get together regularly, handful of guys who practice together in the gym, which is a good place to practice. Do you have an opinion on the effect in and of itself of putting two human beings in a room that's 50 square feet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you like You understand the question. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we have that research from going back in Harlem years ago called uh, the right. behavioral sink research, where yeah. you know when you crowd human beings into a small space, what you're doing is you're fostering violence. Well, you know, this is a larger question about how we do prisons in this country. Yes, yes, I guess I shouldn't take us off. And that. and but but it it's 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 definitely food for thought for every American citizen who basically may feel like, well, we need to be tough on crime. But the vast majority of prisoners are returning to the community. So my question to people who say, well, be tough on crime and lock them up and throw away the key for what they did, what kind of person do you want to run into on the highway? What kind of person do you want to run into in the grocery store? What kind of person do you want to run into in a public park? Well, it's a, dub- it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, though. You know, James, because the vast number of them are returning to society, but the vastest number of those returning to society then return to prison. The recidivism rate yeah. is, is tremendously high. Isn't You're it? right. Yeah. And they don't return to our communities either. However, you still, you know, there's freedom of movement on highways and things like that. That's right. The point being... Do you not want people, while they're incarcerated, to develop some social skills? Yes. And that's something that we failed miserably at in this country. When, when the whole tough-on-crime thing came in in the, in the late 70s. And I think it's beginning to turn because there's a recognition. First of all, we can't afford the prison system that we've built. The prison... The prison the state budget in California alone is $9 billion a year for our state prison system. It's 65 plus billion in the United States. We've got over 2 million people who are incarcerated. One in 100 adults in this country are incarcerated. One in 31 adults in this country are in some kind of correctional supervision. So they're either on parole, probation. It's a failure. We have 60 to 65% recidivism. We have to bring rehabilitation back. We have to rehabilitate. We have to provide people with the services so that they can go back out into the community and, number one, not pose a risk to public safety. 
Do, do, we, do we have more incarcerated prison people in this country than in any country in the world? Absolutely. Absolutely. More than any country in the world, and we consider ourselves a free country. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. One in 31 in this country, that's uh, 3% Under correctional supervision. in correctional supervision. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. We ha- we and then when you start to break it down by races, of course, it becomes even, even more dramatic in terms of people of color. With a 65% recidivism rate. I want to come back to yoga practice. We talked some mm-hmm. about, in the beginning of the program, you talked about experiencing our feelings, our sensations, our bodies, and getting a bit out of the mind, and, and through a certain kind of stretching, I call it, uh, postures, it's what it's called in yoga. Talk to us some, please, about breathing yoga and the place of breathing. Mm-hmm. So the br- a breathing part of the practice in, is uh, called pranayama, which is a Sanskrit word for conscious breathing, which begins with being aware that you're breathing. And then the next step is, well, how are you breathing? Are you hardly breathing? Which most human beings are hardly breathing. They're hardly using the capacity of their lungs to breathe, which is directly related to the amount of energy that they're bringing into their body, the amount of oxygen that they're bringing into their body. So... um, Breathing is a very important part of the physical part of the practice because what's important is that you connect your breathing with your movement when you're doing the postures, the exercises of yoga. You're breathing in or you're breathing out on different movements to maximize this distribution of life force energy in your body. Life force energy being what you draw in through your your breath then how you distribute it through your body. So it's directly related to how much vitality you have, how much vitality is moving in your body. And it can be simple. You don't have to be moving dynamically to get the benefits of this. You can sit in a chair and begin to time the movement of raising your arms with your breath and gradually begin to expand your breathing. And it's important to do it gradually. Otherwise, you'll get lightheaded, you, you, and you can hyperventilate. You want to do it gradually. You want to gradually begin to fill the lungs with air and gradually exhale the air out. The other important part of conscious breathing, and these are just this is just basic fundamentals. I'm not even going into particular specific practices of pranayama, but another really important aspect is your exhale is the body's built-in release valve. So if one of the fundamental objectives of yoga is to release the body of stress, your exhale is your ally in relieving the body of stress. So developing the capacity to completely exhale is extremely beneficial to relieving the body of stress. Um, Suppose a skeptic listening to this is saying uh, to himself or to to, to somebody, uh, what's this guy talking about? I, I breathe all the time. I, I, I was born breathing. I, I breathe. I mean, yeah. I, what, what's there to learn about breathing? It's like uh, telling me uh, I have to learn to listen. I mean, my ears work. Right. So if I was able to do a simple exercise with him or her for five minutes, 
Well, then, we've got two minutes if you want to do it right now. Okay. No, we, All right. we have a minute and a half. I'm getting a signal. Okay. So if you just, for a moment, bring your awareness to your breathing, and the key point here is, and breathing in and out of your nose, the key point here is feeling the breath. So what I mean by that is feeling the movement in the belly, the movement in the chest as you inhale, and the movement in the belly, the movement in the chest as you exhale for two breaths. Is taking two natural breaths and feeling that. And then on your next inhale, slowly see if you can inhale to your full capacity and slowly exhale to your full capacity. So you're exhaling all the air out before inhaling. And do that two more times. So gradually inhaling through the nose, filling the lungs, and then slowly exhaling all the air out. And then one more time. Okay, and that's all we have time for because I'm getting a signal here that I've got to cut off my breath. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) James Fox, thank you so much for coming to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics today and sharing your information about the Prison Yoga Project. For all of you... Yeah, thank you, Richard. I really appreciated it. Really appreciated the opportunity. It was great having you on the show. Folks, if you want to know more about the Prison Yoga Project, just go to Google, look up James Fox, or look up the Prison Yoga Project, A Path for Healing and Recovery, and you'll find out a lot more about his exciting work to help people around this country and around the world who are incarcerated. And thank you all very much for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics which is made possible by our KZYX staff, our in-studio engineer, Mike DeLaura, and our newest staff member, Bob Bushansky. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. (laughs) 